0: This This is is the Second Second Story Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Second Story Podcast Reboot. This is your intrepid new host, Nick Kawahara. Happy November. We've been working in the lab late many nights, brewing you all new aural delights. Expect new formats, new perspectives, and of course the same bedrock of crafted stories we've served up since day one. On the program today is Eric May a longtime collaborator with Second Story. He is the author of the novel Bedrock Faith, which was named a notable African-American title by Publishers Weekly, and a top 10 debut novel for 2014 by Booklist Magazine. Eric is a 2015 recipient of the Chicago Public Library's 21st Century Award, and his writing has appeared in various publications, including the Second Story anthology, Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a low-flying duck. What's that scent? The one that brings back the flurry of memories? What's that tone of voice that drags across your insides? How about that smile you keep seeing on other people's faces? How do you make meaning of the sensuous threads that keep coming back around? That keep needling through your fabric? Recorded live at the main stage on September 24th, 2015, this story deals with how we construct our concept of love. How we hold on to glimmers of idyllic detail and how they resonate and sing throughout the rest of our lives. Second Story Presents, Eric May.
0: Since childhood, one of my favorite photographs of my mother is a black and white picture taken at a summer picnic when Ma was in her early 20s. She has on sunglasses. And if the shadow lines are any indication, she's looking into the late afternoon sun. Her relaxed hair is shoulder length. Her butterscotch skin, even in black and white, seems to glow. Her hands rest on shapely hips. Definitely a hottie. Her vamp pose is unlike any other photograph I've ever seen of her. In other pictures, she assumes the attitude of the honorable schoolgirl, the demure newlywed or the conventional middle-class mother of five who was an elementary school teacher. One night a few years back, while having a beer in a saloon with my youngest brother Mitchell, I brought up Ma's vamp photographs, how it was easy to see what had attracted our father. To this, Mitchell replied, Eric? I really don't feel comfortable talking about our mother that way. (laughs) I dropped the subject, me reminded yet again that for most people, thoughts of mama and thoughts of sex don't mix, which I've always found odd. Now before any of you render a Freudian judgment and banish me to Oedipus Island, Let me say that as a kid, I was not walking around with lusty thoughts about my mom. Nothing beyond typical stuff like me asking, I was maybe four at the time, Mommy, can I marry you when I grow up? We were in the kitchen, me standing alongside Ma and looking up at her as she stood at the sink rinsing off something for supper. She replying, I can't marry you, Eric. I'm already married to daddy. Oh, (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Another thing I didn't think of were any jealousies toward dad. Not that day or other evenings when he'd arrive home, take Ma in his arms, usually in the kitchen, and give her an extended lip lock, she returning his affection in kind. As a young boy, I, of course, did not know the saucy details of what men and women did intimately. However, the sight of them kissing did register at some deeper, primal level, causing the slumbering giant that would one day be my own sexuality to turn over in its sleep and send through me a delightful little tremor. What was perfectly clear to me, when she and dad's lips finally parted, was that kissing him was A, something she enjoyed, B, something she wasn't the least ashamed of, and C, something that apparently was in no way incongruent with her mommy duties. She going right back to fixing supper after the smooching was done. (laughs) For me, decorous female behavior and the sense of safety it gave me and desires that induce delightful tremors seemed like the most natural of combinations. And here's where we come to the effect that this sensibility had on my actions. September 1958, my maiden voyage into schoolboy life at the John D. Shute Elementary School. In kindergarten, I found all manner of delights. Hardboard blocks for constructing edifices that could be crawled into and then joyfully knocked down. Milk breaks, where me and the other kids pried open wax cartons shaped like tiny houses. The room's hardwood floor sported a big, big red circle where occasionally we'd line up and skip around to whatever tune our teacher, kindly white-haired Mrs. Wallace, would play on the stand-up piano. Over the years... In interviews of this or that gay celebrity, I've come across the question, when did you realize you were gay? However, I've never heard an interviewer ask a celeb of the alternate camp, when did you realize you were straight? (laughs) Or perhaps, better put, when did you realize you weren't gay? For me, it was a sunny morning, skipping directly behind Felicia Johnson. (laughs) She wore a lime green tent dress, the lower ends of her legs housed in white anklet socks and black patent leather shoes, and she had pigtails. Such a coarse name for such lovely things. The dark tendrils floated away from the back of her head Seeing all that, I definitely felt one of those aforementioned tremors, which never happened when I skipped behind a boy classmate. Felicia was my first experience with longing that didn't involve some wished-for toy. My walks to school filled with hope that Mrs. Wallace's floating seating arrangement might place Felicia near me at coloring time, dainty fingers holding crayons or for milk break or I'd gaze at the way her neck throbbed when she tilted back her head for an intake of cow juice in a story world of my fiction writing Felicia and I would have become a romance however real life had other ideas she moved from our neighborhood a year after I met her I never saw her again But here's the thing. My memory of skipping behind Felicia, her fingers holding crayons, her throbbing throat, sends through me in my present-day role as the aging memorist, another kind of tremor, the sort that comes from recognizing one's childhood guilelessness and where that guilelessness fits in the overall scheme of his life. Which brings us to the next such notable infatuation, nine years after kindergarten, in September 1967, South Shore High School, where I met Cynthia Vance. She had relaxed, shoulder length hair, with skin the color of butterscotch, and she wore glasses. And all the years I knew her, I never heard her speak with a raised voice. That voice flavored with just a touch of the southern accent. As with Felicia, Cynthia was a friendly but not effusive person. Cynthia was the first girl post-puberty that I ever fantasized about marrying. What I find so amazing now is how non-salacious my thoughts of her were, me imagining she and I having a child but no fantasies of she and I partaking in the biological activity necessary to produce one. (laughs) As to why nothing romantic ever happened between us, well, with my horn-rimmed glasses, inability to play sports, and total lack of fashion sense, to say I was painfully shy would be unfair to those people who at the very least can manage painful shyness. Straight-jacketed shyness was what I was. (laughs) And yet, despite everything that happened, or more correctly, did not happen, (laughs) between Cynthia and I in high school, after graduation, I knew I'd meet her again one day. And I did. Five years later, I I was in college, still living at home, when when we met on a CTA bus. My shyness had lessened somewhat, and we had a perfectly pleasant conversation bringing each other up to speed on what had transpired in each other's lives since cap-and-gown night. After that, we became friends of a sort. No romance because she was not interested, although my now very salacious thoughts continued to hope. It. <laughs> we were still in touch in the late 1970s. By that time, I had my own apartment in East Rogers Park, not far from here. And one summer, I planned a two-week out-of-town vacation, Cynthia was still living in her father's house, and she asked if she could stay at my place while I was gone. (laughs) I, of course, said yes. The final days of my trip spiced with thoughts and lovely tremors that maybe, just maybe, Cynthia would be waiting when I walked into my flat, waiting so she could tell me in her demure manner that she now realized that I, the man of her dreams, had been right under her nose all along. But no, Uh, there was just a note thanking me. That night I went to bed alone and disappointed, which is when I discovered that the bedding reeked of Cynthia. It was a powdery, sweet bouquet. I wasn't making much money back then, And that bedding was the only set I had. No way I was going to get to sleep amidst such an aroma. So I stripped the mattress, went to the laundry room, and washed the sheets and pillowcases. Free of her scent, me alone in that basement under the glow of a naked bulb. Cynthia and I grew apart after that. And I did not see her until several years after the bedding incident. By then, she was married with two children. We ran into each other on a Rogers Park side street during a neighborhood festival. Her daughter, a toddler, her son, maybe four years old. We talked, but not for too long. She was on her way back to her home in Uptown. I made no offer for us to get together for coffee or such as that. She was married with children. What would have been the point? After our goodbyes, I watched her walk away a child on either side, in either hand, and something about the way she turned to speak gently to first one and then the other, just like I'd seen my mother do numerous times with my younger siblings. The epiphany rolling out to me in all its glory, Cynthia merging imaginatively with my mother, the answer to a crucial question I hadn't realized my heart and soul had been asking, this merging a kind of confirmation that my choice to fall in love with Cynthia had been a wise one, which sent a tremor through me unlike any I had ever experienced. And if someday I write a fiction story about a guy who reunites later in life with his unrequited high school heartthrob, I'll include the Rogers Park street scene with little, if any, alteration. For it's a scene with perfect pitch. In the closing paragraph, the story's hero watches his beau-ideal walk away with her two young children. She, the near twin of the first person to teach him the marvel of a woman's love, which causes him neither chagrin or shame. The beau-ideal who he'll compare all subsequent lovers to some equaling, but none surpassing her. Because unlike the beau ideal, the first meetings with those later loves will not occur in that merry season when a boy's newly minted sexuality and has never been in love before come together for the first and only time. Because never been in love before happens only once. His love for the unrequited heart throb, now and forever as faultless in memory as the scene before him. His beau ideal, hands in hands with her children. An idyllic image of motherhood, I know, but charming nonetheless. The three of them stepping from the shade of a building and into the illumination of the late afternoon sun. To his eyes in that light, her butterscotch skin seems to glow as the kids and she walk around a corner and out of his life. Yeah, that might make a good story.
1: You can find Eric May at ericcharlesmay.com You can find us at Second Story. that's 2ndstory.com Eric's story was curated by Megan Shuckman and Reshmi Rustabaki. Reshmi also directed, and Mike Prisgoda and the Prismatics sound designed. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. House Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. If you'd like to support Second Story, please visit our website at 2ndstory.com. This is Nick Kawahara, peace and story power.
0: This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.